This is Greg Tyne, Seton Hall 4th all-time leading scorer, and you've been listening to Left Coast Pirates. Seconds to go down by two. Here's Whitehead. Gardemeyer Chefu gets the step into the lane, goes to the bucket, layup, rolls around and in, and a foul! Whitehead ties the game! Pow! From Trenton! Woo! What Trenton makes, the world takes! Coming to you just west of the Ward Place Gate from San Diego, California. He is Mike Dizzy Deziri, class of 2001. I am Tommy Chilkoharski, class of 1997. And we are Left Coast Pirates. How are you doing today, Michael? I don't know, Tommy. I feel like I had the thunder from my opening monologue completely zapped right out of me yesterday. You know, I, I broke the cardinal rule of one game at a time on the last podcast, and I started to look ahead to the Villanova matchup. I mean, I was super stoked to be previewing a potential matchup of single-digit ranked teams, and I was even going to shout your mantra of, if not now, when? However, it seems like the team might have been looking ahead as well. You know, two lackluster home performances finally caught up with them. Xavier just seemed like they wanted it more on Saturday. Now, Tommy, we don't steal others' ideas on this podcast. So so I have to give credit to Poster Hall Soccer 03 on the Rivals message board that suggested the other day that Seton Hall is currently going through its January swoon. I- except they haven't actually lost. They've actually won while going through the swoon itself, minus the performance on Saturday. I happen to think that they are spot on, and I feel like we have to talk about that on today's podcast. Well, Mike, he might have a real good point here, but you know what? I'm going to flip the script on you. I'm going to look at this from a glass half full perspective. We did just run through a rough patch of games where we truly haven't looked as good as we can. I mean, Miles Powell, as good as he is, as many as points as he puts in, has been struggling from three, which is normally his bread and butter. And he spent the better part of the Xavier game forcing up shots. And right after we expounded on the virtues of Rogue Gill and Q's games, they had a pair of clunkers as well. But Mike, here we are in February and we're 8-1, halfway through the Big East schedule. And even with us playing below the level we can normally play, even though we've been struggling through this last set of games, I'll take it. If this year's January swoon was just what we saw, and it actually took us until February 1st to lose our first Big East game, well, Chicken Little, the sky's not falling. We're still in first place in the Big East, and we're going to take it. So you're going to make me the glass half empty guy on today's podcast. Oh, Mike, As, if they knew you uh, in real life, they knew that's what you are. Because so, we are going to we are gonna have to break down some of these issues that they've had, Tommy. And don't make me the bad guy. We're, we're going to cover that stuff oh, today. Oh, man, you're going to wear the black hat today, Mike. 
But today on the podcast, we're going to review the home win against that feisty DePaul Blue Demons. We will talk about the upset loss at the hands of the Xavier Musketeers. We will preview the games at Georgetown, and we go behind enemy lines with Philadelphia Inquirer writer Joe Giuliano as we prep for our game at hated Villanova. And finally, as he comes down to the hardest stretch of the road to 2494, we will check to see how Miles Powell did this week. Wait, wait, so just wait a minute. How many other teams are we going to start adding to the hated list of Tom Kaharski? It's Syracuse, it's Marquette, now Villanova's hated. Wait a minute, if we lose a couple games here, you're now hated? I don't get it. What's the criteria for being hated now? Mike, if you don't understand who to hate, I can't help you, buddy. But first, Seton Hall 64, DePaul 57. Seton Hall got out of the gate quickly. Miles Powell banked in a three-point shot to make the score 6 17-6, and everyone thought it was going to be that kind of night. But DePaul flipped the script with a 19-8 run over the final nine minutes to take a one-point lead at the half. The second half didn't start off any better. DePaul put together an immediate 10-2 run for a nine-point lead. But the Hall would scrap back into it. But it wasn't until the final 525 that a Miles Powell layup finally put the Hall back in front. By the time the Powell run of 9-0 was over, the Pirates had created enough separation to coast home for the victory. Okay, Tommy Statch for this one. Miles Powell doing his thing again. 24 points to lead all scorers. Jared Roden with another double-double. 14-11 on this evening. Quincy McKnight, six assists. And the Twin Towers combined. 10 points, 13 rebounds, and eight blocks. For DePaul, it was Charlie Moore. 14 points, four rebounds, four assists. But again, another eight turnovers. Paul Reed tied third for nationally with double doubles and 14 coming into this game only had six and seven. It was sloppy combined. They only shot 36% for the game 10 for 42 from three collectively as a group for 23% 48 combined fouls and only 41 made baskets. And there were 38 total turnovers. It was just not an easy game on the eyes. No, Mike, not at all. And I'll tell you, two things stood out for me from a non-analytical perspective. One, this was an over-officiated game. I mean, the last game like this was probably Marquette Seton Hall during the Big East tournament. And two, it really was, like you said, hard on the eyes as neither team really played a good game of basketball. I think the takeaway from these two games this week is that even though we went one and one, there just really weren't a lot of highlights to point out. So we'll kind of touch on a few, but you know, like I said, from the top, then we got to get into breaking down just wasn't working. So, all right, I'll, I'll let you start off with the positive. Make me the bad guy today. Go, go ahead. <laughs> well, Miles Powell gutted out a performance on an off night. I mean, he was seven of 21 from the field. He was a, uh, non-Miles Powell-like, two from 10 from three. He even had struggles from the line. He was only eight for 13, but and the whole team was struggling from the line, but he did enough, and he put together a nice run at the end of the game to cap the game off. 
Well, I mean, that's what we expect from Miles. Every game is not going to be perfect, but we said in a couple of podcasts back, we have Miles Powell and you don't, you kind of need to lean on Miles to not Powell and pray, but you know, when the game's in flux or it's crunch time, we're, we're going to lean on our guy. And like I said, he wasn't having his best shooting night, but he found a way to deliver when they needed them to kind of push it to the next level. That 9-0 run in the postgame, they were like, oh, did you know you were taking over the game during that 9-0 run? And he goes, I don't even know what you're talking about. And he kind of just does his thing. And once again, we take it for granted. So kudos to Miles for pulling that one out. Now, you mentioned during the stats recap that the Twin Towers ended up with a double-double, and at the preseason, we said that that's what we were looking for from the five. We were hoping that together they were going to give that kind of numbers, but Ike had a real nice night. 15 minutes, six points, eight rebounds, three blocks. I mean, he looked good. His footwork looks better. He looks more comfortable out there. What I thought that was really encouraging is that Ike was getting the bulk of the crunch time minutes down the stretch. It wasn't until like the final couple minutes of the game that he put Gil back in to kind of close out the victory. But Ike looked comfortable. It it almost kind of a little night and day performance from when Ike was struggling early on. It was kind of like, wow, we were concerned about some rust. Ike looked like he didn't kind of even belong on the court in certain situations. And he was manning the middle in this game. It felt like it was just... Rose out, plug Ike in, no drop-off. And we'll talk about Rose last second uh, a little bit later in the show. But, Mike, put that black hat on, man, and start complaining. All right, so so my new favorite segment, Sour Grapes and Gripes, because there, there's a lot in this game that we got to cover. We just do. Let, let's start off right from the, the, the stat sheet. 14 for 29 from the free throw line. Come on, Tom. 14 for 29? Oh, it was painful to watch them clink and clunk from that line. I mean, it was just, they were getting to the line. I mean, the refs were helping. They were really blowing that whistle at every single point. But it wasn't helping. I mean, we get double-digit win if we hit our normal percentage of shots. Yeah, but how many games are you going to look at the stat sheet and shoot less than 50% from the free throw line with that kind of volume of attempts and actually walk out with a W? I mean, that's kind of a lucky stat right there. And shooting from the line wasn't the only place where we struggled from, was it, Mike? No, they couldn't hit the broadside of a barn. Six of 27 from three-point range. The fact that you can combine both of those stats and they walk out of the building with a W, and then I'm going to throw 18 turnovers on top of that. How did they get this win? Because DePaul played just as poorly, man. <laughs> uh, like, like I said, it was not easy on the eyes, but there was kind of like some plays that I was watching that I was just scratching my head. So there was a moment where I forgot, I think Kale took the three from the corner and Powell comes in crashing the glass and then ends up holding onto the rim as Roden lays in an easy putback. And obviously that's basket interference. And you could even see Roden jogging back down the court, shaking his head going, what the heck was he doing up there? You know, it's like he had a brain fart for a second. I mean, it just didn't make any sense. You know, a lot of times guys grab that rim to kind of get safely down from a dunk, but but there was nothing there. I don't know what he was thinking. I'm going to even let you have this next point because I he's back. He's my boy. You, you have all the fun you want. Go no, ahead. Have you fun. Know, you think, you see, you keep putting out this false narrative that I am anti-Sandro. And you don't want to say it because you don't want to make your boy feel bad, but you thought that Sandro looked rusty, and he did. But, you know, he missed a boatload of games. Of course he's going to get rusty. 
But this was expected, and, and I would have liked to see him play a couple more minutes in that second half. You could have squeaked three, four more minutes out there just to get his legs underneath him. No, it was it was a tight game. Every possession mattered, and Sandro had a stretch towards the end of the first half where he kind of tripped over his own feet. He got a loose ball foul. You're texting me going, he's shrugging again. He's he got midseason form on his shrugs. Oh, I, I was giving you heck. He took a bad three. He he fouled somebody out of frustration, and then he did the shrug. And I said, "Oh, he's in midseason form. Let me send this to Mike." But no, but it, yeah, but seriously, he's getting his legs underneath him. He should have played three or four minutes. I do not believe you couldn't have snuck him in there for it, regardless of it being a close game. I think you could have got it. Just do me a favor. As you continue to build out your hated list, just keep Sandro off the list, please. He's one of ours. I all right? love Sandro. You don't know. I love him. All right. Here, here's my last one here. I, I actually got a two more, but but this one kind of jumped out again. The crowd. Are, are we really going to pick on the crowd again? But uh, I respect Jim Spernarkel, and there were two comments that he made throughout the game. It was early on. He goes, have you ever heard it this quiet? And then as the game progressed, he's like, it's like the crowd is waiting for something to happen. And they're the, you know, the paid attendance is 9,302 for this game. But I don't even know if we had that kind of showing because what bothered me is I'm, I'm kind of only being able to watch on television what I can visually observe. And you kind of get like the three to four rows you know, behind the scorers table, behind the benches. And I'm actually, I, I don't know what's happening in my life as I do this podcast, but now I'm pausing the DVD player to kind of count empty seats. And what do I do? I count 40 empty seats in these premium seats, three to four rows behind the bench. How is that possible? Come on. We're top 10 in the country. It's a home game. It's an early start this time. I don't want to hear about the late 845 start. Now we got the early start. It's too early to get there. The people are at work. No, uh, no. All right. So I'll take this in two parts. I don't mind the crowd being quiet. We were not giving them anything to cheer about. I understand the kind of the crowd sitting on their hands, waiting for something to happen. That kind of stuff happens. Now, I the paid attendance, that number doesn't mean anything to me. You got to show up. And it's a shame that you had that many seats open in the first three, four rows. You got to get out there. We crabbed about it last week during the Providence game. You got to get out there. I don't care that DePaul is the last place team in the league again. I don't care that they've been last place over and over in the past. You need to see these games. You only have a few more left. All right. Last gripe on my list for this DePaul game. It was a Mike Stevens ref game. Man, the refs were way too involved. Just way too much with the whistle this game. I I understand when you have to clean things up. And I also understand what we just experienced from a national media perspective with the Kansas-Kansas State melee at the end of the game. But Mike Stevens and his crew made it about them. There were a couple little shoves and elbows. That doesn't mean you start keying everybody up left and right. That doesn't mean that you start calling every little ticky-tack foul to try to get control of the game. He's having like kumbaya sessions at the at the free throw line in, in certain sessions where you're all 10 guys huddled around him and he's kind of preaching to them, here's how the game's going to be. Like, just let the kids play. Way too many foul calls. Yeah, and they weren't the only ones having a rough time. The refs had a rough time. The players had a rough time and the announcers had a rough time but i'm gonna stop you before you go into this brian custer is now 25 and 0 i will not listen to any blasphemy about anything brian custer said so mike 
Did they really say that? But but he has to though. I mean, just because he's twenty five and zero does not mean he gets a pass. This segment is you're you know, gonna mush your mic. I don't want to hear it. I I got to hold people accountable, Tommy. Not only do I hold you accountable, I hold everyone accountable. I mean, he's calling Jared Roden a junior. He's a sophomore. I, we talk about mushmouth, and I understand that mushmouth happens. But you can't call Miles Powell Miles Pyle as he shoots a three pointer. You just can't do that. And Smirnarkel even called him Kevin Leonard once. I mean, it, <laughs> it just wasn't a good game. But but here's my bigger issue with, with uh, Custer and his comments. There was a point in the game where they're talking about Willard's ability to make adjustments at the point in the game early in the second half when DePaul had just gone on that 10-2 to run that you talked about and the score is 39-30. to And right before the under-16 timeout, he takes Powell out, puts Shavar in, and Q makes a bucket. And Spornarkel says, I like that they went small here. What? I mean, he normally takes out Powell for, for Reynolds there to get Powell's the extra breather. But then Custer responds and goes, that's the brilliance of Kevin Willard when it comes to making adjustments, especially on the defensive side. Seriously? Is this what happens when you read too many of John Rothstein's chiropractic tweets? At the end of the first half and the last seven minutes, Seton Hall goes two for 10 from the floor, four turnovers, two missed one-on-ones. And then to start the second half and that 10 to two run, the first four minutes, one for four from the field, another turnover and three offensive rebounds surrendered. In an 11 minute stretch, spanning the end of the first half and the beginning of the second, they were on a 21 to seven run. Adjustments? Adjust brilliance of adjustments. If you just mushed Custer winning streak, I'm never going to speak to you again. That's it. <laughs> I mean, I, I want to, I know we're not moving on to the next game yet, but we're in this segment of, did they really say that? And Tim Brando makes another cameo appearance. He decides to join in by once again, going McKnight in the McDay. Oh, geez, man. I mean, that's just dumb. That's just dumb. <laughs> Leave Timmy Brando alone. He's a good listen. I can't because it gets worse. I mean, the wheels are coming off. The game is coming to an end. Shavar hits a three. And then a couple of possessions later, Shavar jacks up another three from the right baseline. And he goes, Shavar Reynolds is feeling it from three. He hit one three in garbage time. And he was attempting shot number two. And, t- and the game's over at this point. And Tim's like, he's feeling it? Just let it go, Tim. Let it go. Okay. Okay. The announcers were a bit off. But you know what wasn't off? Romaro Gill's shot blocking continues to be spot on. And this week again, it might, we might have to change the name of this thing to Whoa, did you see Romaro do that? But Whoa, did you see that? Is Gill blocking Jalen Coleman Land's dunk attempt to close out the game? Someone get that boy a scouting report. You do not go up a roll Gill like that. You know, it's got a nice little ring to it. Whoa, did you see Roe? I'll tell you. It just just flows, right? I think Lance has to do what he had to do there. It's late in the game. He's got a full head of steam. I think you got to take the ball to the basket and dunk it. You disagree. Lance comes in with two hands, not to be denied, except he was denied. No, he's coming up like there's nobody in front of him. And not only is nobody in front of him, it's Roe's bodies in front of him. Are you kidding me? Well, I, I'm, I'm happy he blocked it. I'm happy we rolled into that final win there. 
but there was a second game this week. Xavier 74, Seton Hall 62. Kevin Willard and the Pirates apparently didn't get to memo that the game started at 11 because Xavier raced out to a 30 to 6 lead. Yes, 30 to 6. The Hall weathered the storm and used a 14-3 run to help cut the lead down to 12 at half. The Pirates came out in the second half and had moments to get back into it, but they could never get the deficit back under seven. Xavier found a way to grab every loose ball, and they made big buckets down the stretch to keep the Pirates at bay. Now, the stat sheet, Tommy, wasn't much better for the Pirates as well. Quincy McKnight, 15 points to lead the Hall before exiting with a knee injury. Jared Roden with, once again, 13-5. and five. Sandro had 10 points off the bench in his second game back, but that was basically it. I mean, the, the stat sheet was dominated by the Musketeers. Tyreek Jones, 19 points and 18 rebounds. Najee Marshall, 19 points and 10 rebounds, as well as shutting down Miles Powell for only nine points on the game. And the hustle stats just kind of jumped out in this one. Second chance points, Xavier 18, Seton Hall none rebounds and this is this is just mind-boggling xavier 51 seton hall 22 offensive boards xavier 14 seton hall 5 and the vaunted d was not on display either in this one xavier finished at 54 percent from the field and seton hall was basically ice cold at 36 percent from the floor and 22 percent from three on 27 attempts mike we talked about the game against DePaul being hard on the eyes this one was simply atrocious. The effort, the game plan, the execution. We might have to just chalk up this game to being one of those type games. These games happen every year, and sometimes you just got to shrug it off. Let's remember, Xavier was picked to be third in the Big East in the preseason poll, and their season has been a dumpster fire so far. Maybe this game was one of those times when the team was desperate, they knew they needed a win, and they were going to go out there and do whatever they needed to. And that's kind of what happened. So I don't know if this is a precursor to more bad games, or is this just one of those times where you just say, well, it, it, it was just that game. No, I, I get it. it Xavier definitely needed to kind of dig down deep. They had a really tough loss uh, in their last game out, losing in double overtime. But it's your home court, right? I, I feel like you still got to kind of uh, impose your will when we really are the better team. But it, it was kind of due to happen. So is this one of those games where you basically just say we're going to burn the game film, you know, chalk it up to just a one-game anomaly? You know, you know, say that we, hey, we weren't going to go undefeated in Big E's play, right? I think Kevin said that in his postgame. You know, if you want to find a silver lining, be very happy that the injury to Quincy McKnight appears to not be that serious, right? Well, well, I'll but, wait till the MRI report comes back, but they said it's not that serious. It has to be not that serious. Willard normally tells you that you sit, like you say, he's going to amputate a body part, and now he's in the post game going, it's not that serious. I got to, I got to take that as a good sign, right? I don't know what to believe in post games anymore, Mike. All right, but there are definitely some concerns from this game that need to be looked at, right? And we, and we broke down some of those stats, and I'm going to throw them at you again, and I kind of want to get your take. We need to discuss the rebounding. 51 to 22 is just not acceptable. 
14 to five on the offensive rebound and no second chance points to me, those are hustle stats right there. Absolutely. It's effort. It's all about effort. I mean, they had a lot of shots underneath the basket to show that replay. We've got guys watching. We've got guys like legitimately all the way underneath the basket, looking straight up at the rim. I mean, put a button to somebody and start going back, man. You got to clear out space. So it's okay if you lose a game. You're, you're going to lose a game here or there. We've we've gone through it early in the season. Nothing else works out in a perfect magical ride. But we saw some of the writings on the wall in the Providence game, the 19 offensive rebounds that they had. And now you see rebounding rearing its ugly head again. So we're seeing a theme. So the, And that's why I said, you know, not the sky is falling, but we should be a little bit worried. Go back out, address it in practice. Let me see what happens in the Georgetown game, and I'll, and I'll take a deep breath. But if I continue to see us getting dominated on the glass, minus 29. We got the Twin Towers. We got Sandro back. Minus 29. You just, you can't have that happen. One player from the other team should never be able to have almost the same amount of rebounds as your entire team in what Jones was able to do. I mean, he just bully balled them the entire game underneath. We talk about the greatness of Miles Powell back and forth, but he's had rough games since he came back from the concussion. Now, is it the slow starts or is he not 100%? I mean, there's talk about him having knee tendonitis, but his numbers were ugly, man. He was one for seven for four points in the first half. He finishes with only nine points. He went three for 14, one from nine. And a lot of those shots were just bad decisions he's making. Look, I am not a doctor. I can't, you know, elaborate and go into what he's seeing or feeling, you know, post-concussion. Is this something that takes him a full year to kind of get a complete clear head on? Is he, is he just going through a basketball slump? But the numbers are kind of starting to jump off the page. You're starting to see his stats from three-point range since the DePaul game, 19 for 75 at a 25% clip. That's not a small sample anymore. That's not, ah, he's had one or two bad games. So, yes, his overall performance in the last three, because he hasn't put in the traditional Powell 25 and wear the Superman cape, you know, hasn't jumped out. But the three-point shooting, you have a nine-game sample or body of work to really evaluate. You have to be worried about it. It just doesn't look good. And if Miles isn't hitting his three, we're not getting good three-point shooting from anywhere else on this team right now. Miles Kale has just, I don't know, regressed to his freshman year offensive production. This bad shooting is leading us to have to dig out of deficits. We're not, we're certainly not doing other things. We keep shooting from the outside. And five of the last six games, we end up having to dig out of big deficits. I wasn't even ready to move on to that next bullet point yet. I was going to sit there and say, when Miles doesn't make a three, apparently the crowd's not allowed to get into the game either. Like, you know, we, we get, well, without the Miles Powell, you know roof dropping three we can't get excited I, uh, okay let, let, let's move on to the next bullet point yes five out of the last six games you know what it's a trend and, and that's why we have to be worried and collectively you know if you start breaking it down nine at the Paul, 11 against marquette 10 at butler 13 at st john's another nine against butler and 24 yesterday what what's causing the issue here I, I, I don't know. You know, I, we've always said Miles starts slow and he closes. But, I mean, this is where, – where's the adjustments here? We need to make some kind of adjustments here and figure this out. 
I was going to say, if you complain about the start time of this game, I was going to take you to the woodshed. <laughs> it's too late. It's too early. It, there's too many games in the week. There's not enough games in the week. I don't want to hear it anymore. So, so here's what happened in some of these other games. You know, Marquette got off to a blistering start shooting the basketball. So I can live with the 11-point deficit that we built there. Butler's crowd was just insane and they got on a run and they were also shooting 50 plus in the first half. So I understand the 10 point deficit in that game. St. John's, we just got blitzed by the press and we kind of just got smacked in the face, but they rallied back. Can you explain to me a 30 to four run A 30 to four run? There's, there's no explanation there. I mean, you should be able to hit a couple layups somewhere along the line. How about when it gets to 12 to nothing? And all of a sudden we're like, Whoa, everybody wake up. It took the 30 to four for the light bulb to go off to say, Hey, got to get in gear guys. Well, in a lot of these games early on, we've been able to get some instant offense early from Rogue Gill and, that's not happening. And so the question is, are they scouting Roe Gill? Why don't you just say I called it a couple of podcasts ago? I, I said this was something we should be worried about that, you know, in the second half of that Providence game, was Ed Cooley starting to paint a blueprint for slowing down Romero Gill? They didn't allow him to freely get to the basket in that game off the pick and roll. And I started to chart it in the last 60 minutes of play since including that second half against Providence. Rowe only has eight points. And this is a guy that we were touting as, you know, best improved player in the country, best improved player in the Big East, possibly an all Big East roster spot. I'm not doing a 180 on Rowe here, but, but we need to pump the brakes a little bit. If the other teams are going to clog the middle, Rowe is not kind of putting on an offensive show by posting guys up going one-on-one. -on -one. He has to get his baskets off of the facilitation of others. But what's going to happen is, if you clog the middle against Rowe, other guys are going to be open, and it needs to be offset by better three-point shooting. Have you seen the numbers for the last two games of the three-point shooting? Well, you know, Mike, I, I don't know about that. You know, in, in, what, we haven't even done anything with Rowe besides trying to get him into that pick and roll. It's like we fell in love with that pick and roll. Now, I'm not saying that he's got these great down low post moves, but he's got a nice little soft baby hook that is somewhat successful, but we weren't even going to it. How many baby hooks do you want from row a game? Come on. You got to try you got to try something. You can't okay, just keep okay. going to the well. People are going to say, "Hey, that's all he does." Let him get down there. But they did. He took a couple hook shots. They weren't going in this game. I'm, I'm not basing our offensive philosophy on Roe Gill inside out. I'll, I'll give him a couple touches because he's earned it. But you cannot shoot 6 of 27 against DePaul from three. You can't shoot 6 of 27 again against Xavier. Turn the ball over like they get it against DePaul. Get out rebounded against Xavier and expect to come out on the winning end of most games. So either come up with a different offensive philosophy or you got to start knocking down some shots. I expect to see Rogue get a little more touches down low with Sandro back in. You, Sandro's that good big man passer that Angel was, and Angel seemed to get Desi some looks down there. So let's see what happens once uh, once Sandro's reassimilated into the offense. All right, I'm going to put my, my grumpy pants on the side for a second, and I'm going to tell you that I still think we could have won this game. As crazy as that sounds, there was a stretch in the second half at the 925 mark that we were down 10. So I'm going to make you go down memory lane in this game for a second, even though it was painful. And remember Roden drives in from the left-hand side and he kind of double clutches on a layup attempt and comes up short. Sure, All right. Sure. Let, let, let's say he makes that. 
Then we get a stop. Powell comes down. Man, he rimmed out a three-pointer that was literally oh, halfway that was down, painful. right? That was a painful shot to watch. All right, so let, let's say he makes that. Now we're down five, but instead, off of that miss, Xavier gets a transition dunk for an alley-oop, which if that basket goes down, they probably don't get. And I'm assuming with the momentum of the crowd, we get a stop. Then Powell comes back down again. Making a lot missed, of assumptions here, Mike. But okay, He missed a layup, Tommy. He, 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 he missed a layup. I mean, how often do you see Miles miss a layup? Right then, we then we get a stop, and Sandro makes a little turnaround. That that could have been a one point game, a one point game. Instead, after Sandro makes that turnaround, we're down ten, and it just seemed like that we were never really to get able to get over the hump. Person coulda right? woulda shoulda, Mike. But I'll tell you what was I think as big a spot when Q gets that steal, tips it down, and Sandro picks it up, and comes down the court and shows off that big man skill that he's got that he can dribble, he's running down that fast break, and he puts that layup in, and he does the double bicep, Angel Delgado move, and he's showing off. We're down do seven. It. We're down Don't seven do there, Mike. And he misses the foul shot. You're going to blame it on the Sandra for No, I'm not now. blaming it. I'm saying there's more than just one point where I'm thinking, we get that, the momentum's moving, all of a sudden we miss it, it goes on. My takeaway was going to be we played a horrendous game. It was atrocious. Whatever verb or adjectives that you want to use to describe this game and as poorly as they played, if they kind of figure out to get the ball to bounce a certain way at that moment or at that juncture that you just described, they probably still win this game. So I'm going to sit there and say that's just something that's very special about this team, that they could have played their C-minus D-plus game and still won. This is a game where if they played it in previous years, that's the 30-point waxing at Villanova. And you find a way to make Sandro the scapegoat. I am not making Sandro the scapegoat. You just made Powell the scapegoat by missing a bunch of shots. I'm just saying there were multiple points in this game, Mike, where we could have put a run together and had it. Put your black hat on and tell everybody why they shouldn't be excited about having an 8-1 record in the Big East. I don't, don't do this, but, but okay, fine, fine. I'll, I'll, I'll play along. Let's do this. The, the eight and one, when you start looking back as to who we played, you know, the first nine games, those opponents have a combined record of 25 and 40. Twice we played DePaul, who's one and eight, and twice we played Xavier, who's three and six. So it didn't look like it was going to be the soft part of the schedule when we first kind of mapped it out because four of the first six were on the road. But when you now look at it in present day against the upcoming 11 games that remain, you now have Nova twice, who's seven and two. You have Creighton twice, who's six and three, and playing some great basketball. You have at Marquette six and four, at Providence five and four, and Butler's going to come to town probably fighting for an NCAA bid or kind of trying to get their position and foothold in the upper half of the Big East. That's 27 and 15 as the record for those top five teams. So like I said, I, I understand that they already have these four road wins, but it appears that they played the underbelly of the schedule. So my whole mantra for this section was, are you a little bit worried? No, so I, I'll tell you why I'm not worried. Last year, a DePaul team that wasn't very good swept us. You play who's in front of you. You beat who's in front of you. You take your wins. 
We are eight and one. If we go slightly better than 500 rest of the way, we're ending this season with 13 Big East wins. I'll take that any season. As we go back into the home stretch, the last nine games, who do we have up first? Georgetown. So speaking of the underbelly, that's got to be the easiest game of the remaining five road games on the schedule. No? Well, Georgetown is still depleted, obviously, but they're putting up a fight. They just beat St. John's as we're recording this. You know, you can't take this team lightly. I'm going to get excited because they won in the garden by one point to end a three-game losing streak, and now they're tied for seventh with Xavier in the standings? Come on. Mike, they've played well. Their record may not show it. I'm not taking Georgetown lightly. I don't take anyone on this schedule lightly, Mike. The Big East is a good conference this year. Yeah, but they're they're starting to kind of get a book on them, right? So Omar, you're at seven, has definitely cooled off a bit. He was averaging 22 points a game in non-conference play after all the players transferred off their roster. And now he's only averaging like 13 points a game during Big East play. So, I mean, I think there's like a bit of like a, a, a scouting report that's out there now on how to beat them. So, yeah, great. Mac McClung is, you know, is their go-to guy. 18 points, four assists, three rebounds, two steals. Fantastic. He's an all-conference guy, kind of. But he's all they get really got right now. So, you shut down McClung, you know, where else are they beating you? But, Mike, the Hoyas can't be taken lightly at home despite their overall record. They had a 21-point win against St. John's earlier. They beat that Creighton team that you're so in love with, and they had close losses to both Butler and Marquette. This is a decent team, especially at home. Fine, fine. I'll get back to the one-game-at-a-time mantra. I, I, I hear you. Fine. But, Mike, this really isn't a week to talk about Georgetown. This is Nova week, baby. And what better way to find out what we can expect about Nova than to go behind enemy lines with someone that covers them for a living. Well, now you're talking. See, I, I want to I wanna kind of think bigger. You, you know, their performance this week, kind of a little black cloud for me. But I was assuming that the Pirates were going to take care of business, you know, this week on Wednesday against Georgetown. And I was juiced up to talk about this game upcoming on Saturday. It's not going to diminish the behind the enemy line segment. But it, it would have been really cool if we were 10-0, and 0, they were 9-1. and 1. It just it takes a little bit of the luster off of it. He is a sports writer and covers the Villanova Wildcats for the Philadelphia Inquirer. Please welcome to Left Coast Pirates Live, Joe Giuliano. Joe, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you, Tom and Mike. Great to be with you guys. Nah, thank you, Joe, for joining the show. All right, Joe, as uh, Villanova, as we talk today, sits at seven and four overall, seven and two and second place in the Big East standings. They also have a huge win against at bad time, number one, Kansas, as well as solid wins in the Big East to date at Creighton and versus number 13, Butler. How similar to some of the vintage Jay Wright teams is this roster becoming? Well, the number one thing with Villanova is always defense and for defense, you have to communicate. And if you're not communicating, then Jay Wright uh, takes you back uh, into practice and you're just going to be practicing defense for a while. Villanova only shot 36% on Saturday in their loss to Creighton at home. And people asked Jay after the game about shooting, you know, were you disappointed in the shooting? He says, we never worry about shooting. He says, we only worry about getting back on defense and, rebounding and, and all that good stuff. So I'm seeing the young guys on this team getting to know the defense a, a little better. 
Um, it showed from a, a series there where they had 13 wins out of 14 games, the only loss being to Marquette before the Saturday loss to Creighton. But, uh, yeah, they're getting there, but uh, they're still young and uh, still learning, and uh, I don't know if they're going to have it by the end of the year, but they're they're trying. Now, I think most Seton Hall fans think that Romaro Gill should be the Big East most improved player, and I know we've been talking it up all throughout the season. However, Colin Gillespie's really stepped up his game this year to become the floor general that this team normally has. He's got 15 points a game, nearly five assists. He's even pulling down almost four rebounds. How much did his role on the Pan Am game U.S. team this year play into becoming the leader he is now? Well, I think he's always been on that road, Jay wanted him to become that leader after he lost his two seniors from last season, Phil Booth and Eric Pascal. Villanova doesn't have any fourth-year players on their team, no scholarship seniors, and the three juniors are all third-year juniors, no red shirts. But I think out of that three, I think he wanted Colin, the fact that he was going to be the point guard and play. Uh, the stats have him at 33 minutes a game, but I think at Big East play, he's played maybe 36 or 37 minutes a game. He wanted Colin to be that leader, the guy that uh, is in charge on the floor, the guy who gets the guys going at practice. Um, you know, if he sees somebody not doing the right thing or if he sees somebody struggling with something, he will come over and show him. And during the game, just directing everybody and, and, um, and getting everybody on the same page. And, and you mentioned his rebounding. You know, he was averaging two rebounds and change before the game last uh, uh, Saturday, the um, 25th of January against Providence, and he ended up grabbing eight rebounds in that game. And then the next game against St. John's, he grabbed 13 for his first career double-double. So he's doing what is necessary, and that was reminiscent, at least to Jay Wright, of a guy they used to have on that team called Ryan Archidiakono. And uh, they feel that you know, Colin just knows what needs to be done on the floor, whether it's scoring, passing, rebounding, facilitating, playing defense, or, you know, diving for the ball, you know, just setting the tone. And I think that's what he's getting from him this season. So, Joe, Tom wanted to talk about the leadership. I want to talk about the big-time freshman that Villa, Villanova recruited this year. You got Jeremiah Robinson-Earl, Justin Moore, and local product here in Jersey, Brian Antoine. So Robinson Earl is basically averaging a double-double this season to date. Is there anyone who could beat him out for Rookie of the Year in the Big East? Well, it's funny, uh, Mike. The Big East always picks a Rookie of the Week, and right now the uh, front runners in the Rookie of the Week poll are Justin Moore, who has four mentions as Rookie of the Week, and Jeremiah Robinson Earl, who has four mentions. I love Robinson Earl's game. You can tell uh, – you asked me about Colin and, and the U.S. Pan Am team – um, Jeremiah Robinson Earl has already played in two international competitions for USA basketball. So he, he's a guy that comes with a lot of polish and, and, and just a, a, a incredibly good IQ for a kid of his age. You know, the, the fact that Villanova got him was pretty much a coup by Jay Wright because his father played for Kansas, Lester Earl, and he's his, and he is from Kansas, uh, over Overland Park, Kansas. And I think Kansas felt that they were going to get him automatically. And Jay Wright just kind of outworked them and uh, convinced Jeremiah that this was the place to come. And this was a great family atmosphere. And look, we've had success. We have two national championship trophies in our, in our case from the last, uh, from the last four years or five years. So, yeah, so he's been a real, uh, he's been a, a terrific player for Villanova. He's, he's been a little inconsistent at times, which happens as a freshman. Um, but, 
you know, he's learning along with everybody else. And, and as you said, you know, averaging nearly a double-double as a freshman is a pretty good deal. So are we watching a guy who's going to be dominating the Big East for the foreseeable future or, you know, his his next step in the, in the short term, the NBA? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I'm thinking right now he's really enjoying what he's doing and, and he's, uh, you know, saying all the right things. And uh, I'm pretty sure he's – well, if I had to guess, I would think he would come back for one more year but I don't think you're going to see him very much past that. All right, let, let's transition over the, like I said, local New Jersey product, Brian Antoine. He had a major setback with the shoulder injury coming into the season. And, you know, based on the numbers, you know, he hasn't had a lot of production in his limited action for the 13 games to date. So how close is he to getting back to the player that Jay Wright was expecting to contribute this year? Well, it's funny, you know, you hear Jay Wright talk about it and it's just such a long process to get to know the plays and get to know all the intricacies of the system and all that. And then I interviewed Brian Antoine, uh, it was a, when was it? Uh, it was like a week ago Thursday. And um, he was pretty much in the same corner as Jay Wright was, you know, saying that, you know, I had a very serious injury. I know it's going to take time to get back. I, I know I, I was, I missed a lot of practice time, so I know I have to keep catching up. I know I have to do this and that. So I think Brian realizes that, that it is a long process to get back to the, the, the uh, player, the shooter. He was uh, back in high school at the Ranny School. Um, yeah, he's not playing very much, and he doesn't seem to be bothered by it. Uh, you know, he knows that uh, he, he knows he's not 100% yet. Uh, whether it'll take him till the end of the season to get there is anyone's guess, but he looks good. He feels good. He's not worried about hurting the shoulder again. It's just going to take some time to get uh, accustomed to it. And, and Jay likes to, to uh, ride a short bench anyway. He only played uh, six guys for the most part in the uh, loss to Creighton. Uh, he put in uh, uh, one kid for four minutes, and then he put in Brian and, and two other guys in the last 17 seconds at mop-up time. But uh yeah, I think he's going to be a, a real good player. I just hope he stays with it, and, uh, and 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 it doesn't sound like he's too disappointed or frustrated. He just he knows the program, he knows the process, and he's going to follow it to to, uh, to getting back to being who he was. So the last piece of the trifecta is Moore, and to me, he's an interesting case, right? He had a three-game stretch early in the season in which he averaged 19 points a game against the Big Five schools, but then he kind of hit a little freshman wall during Big East play and then he bounced back recently and scored double figures in his last three so is it just the typical freshman ups and downs or did he turn a corner recently well you're, you're absolutely right on all counts <laughs> he did have some great numbers against the uh, big five teams and in other games in the non-conference season and then uh, yeah he did hit a bit of a wall his shooting was uh, pretty pretty well far off and he wasn't really going to the basket like he was but in the last uh two, three games, I think he's really starting to find his way back. He's had some good uh, first halves of games uh, against uh, at Providence, and uh, he had a, a pretty good full game against St. John's and another good first half against Creighton. So, yeah, he's he's starting to find his shot again, and he's getting more confident on the floor, too. He, he knows where he has to be on the floor. Uh, offensively, you know, it's more of a smooth mix with him and, and the other guys. And the other thing is uh, more uh, started the first six games of the season. And then they decided to bring him off the bench as the sixth man, but he's still getting starters minutes like 28, 29 a game. Uh, he did start the, the St. John's game after Jermaine Samuels had to sit out with a foot injury, but he was back uh, coming off the bench again against Creighton. But yeah, he's learning everything about uh, 
what he has to do, and, and especially on the defensive end of the floor. And he's played very well. Uh, the last three games have been uh, pretty solid for him, and uh, it's a very uh, it, it's a good mix in there. And, and I think he's uh, figuring out what he has to do, and, and it's going to keep doing it. Well, it feels like all the attention goes to Gillespie and the freshman, but it's easy to lose sight of the impact and growth of Sadiq Bay and Jermaine Samuels. How have their games matured this year? Well, I think Bay has really come along tremendously. Uh, you know, from uh, from a guy who was just a complimentary piece last year, uh, you know, a, a good player, solid player, but not really asked to do too much, to a guy who's turning into one of the go-to guys along with Colin Gillespie. He's uh, really shot the three-point uh, shot well. He uh, is averaging around 15 a game. Uh, there was a time uh, this week, this past week, where he was actually leading the Big East in three-point shooting. He had a kind of an off game against Creighton going only one for five, but uh, he's a guy that's uh, really going to be asked to do a lot for Villanova as far as not only scoring, but rebounding and, and uh, you know, actually facilitating. He's averaging about two and a half assists a game as well. And then they're putting him on the, the best, uh, one of the better defensive players in the backcourt, as well as Gillespie. They, they really uh, try to lock up guys uh, together very nicely. But uh, yeah, he's, he's having a, uh, a good year. I, I think he's having a better year than I, I really expected him to have coming into this season. But uh, it's he's uh, you know Jay Wright's really asked his guys to step up in the lack of like major experience on the team. And as for Jermaine Samuels, he's I think he's the most versatile player on the team. He can shoot, rebound, pass. He's uh he's the uh, Villanova's best shot blocker. Uh, defense a, gra- a great defensive player who's uh, got a lot of steals. He's uh, he's really picking it up. The only thing with Samuels is that he's kind of a reluctant offensive player. He there are nights where he he's really looking for a shot, and there was a couple of uh, moments or more than a couple in the Creighton game that they just lost where he was he looked like he was free for an open look from maybe the three point line or just inside, and he decided to pass it. So there, there's still some shyness there with shooting, but uh, he always says that it's. It's in the best interest of the team. So whatever he's doing, whether it's shooting or passing, he, he always looks to make the right play, and, and that's the, the way all the Villanova guys are. They're always looking to make the right play or make the extra pass, even though you think they should have shot the ball two passes ago. So we were watching the game the other day against Xavier, and Jared Roden was having a good game. And I remember the color commentator saying that probably his biggest weakness is sometimes he doesn't know how good he is. I, I watched Samuel play, and I kind of make the same comparison. Right, and he was also on that U.S. Pan Am team with uh, Colin Gillespie, and uh, you know, asking uh, Coach Cooley about it, and he was like, "Well, you know, he, he was a, uh, he just did everything we asked him to do. He really didn't look to take a lot of shots, or, or he just did all the dirty work, uh, the behind-the-scenes stuff with the, you know, rebounding defense and uh, just doing what he had to do to help the team win. And uh, you know, he, he's he's a really nice kid. I mean, he, he's." He's a very humble, very sincere kid, and uh, you know I like talking to him. He's uh, he just wants to do the right thing, and, and that's uh, I guess that's to be admired. Now moving away from the individual players, more to team. You know something really interesting happened this past Saturday. Both Seton Hall and Villanova lost their home games, and they were top of the conference. Do you still think that this is a two-team race, or can someone sneak in for that Big East title? Well, the Big East is so competitive. I know you've heard that time after time this season that, you know, like last, even uh, 
the, the days that you mentioned where uh, Seen Hall and Villanova both lost at home. Butler lost at home. They're ranked. Uh, Marquette, which could be ranked, uh, had to battle DePaul at home down to the wire before winning. So, yeah, the, it, the Big East is such where if you don't come out with your, with your A game, you're, you're definitely in jeopardy of getting defeated. And that's, you know, and yeah, Seton Hall and Villanova, I think, are the two best teams in the league. But you know, there's always the potential for the other eight teams in the league to beat them. I, you know, it sounds so cliche that any team can beat any team on any night. And I think Villanova and, and Seton Hall have to be uh, careful of that. I mean, look at look at Villanova. They started the Big E season last year 10-0. and 0, And then all of a sudden they had a three-game losing streak. They lost to Seton Hall in the last game of the season and barely managed to win the uh, the Big East regular season on a tiebreaker at twelve at uh, fourteen and four. So, yeah, it's it's a very tough league, and you know I, I don't think we're 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 through with it yet. Seven and two for Villanova. That's nine, and there's still nine games left to play. They've got some tough road games coming up, especially the next one, which is at Butler. Of course, they have to play Seton Hall uh, Saturday at the Wells Fargo Center and then come back to the Rock on uh, the second last game of the season. So, yeah, there's going to be a lot going on where other teams will be able to get into the to the mix of, of the first two. So, Joe, let, let's stay with that theme for a second. Both teams obviously have road games coming up prior to this highly anticipated matchup uh, on Saturday. You know, considering that they both lost on Saturday, does either team lose focus, you know, in this game upcoming you know, obviously Villanova's got to rank Butler ahead of them, or, you know, is that game important enough where they kind of don't lose sight of, you know, what's in front of them? Well, I know Jay Wright and you know, Kevin Willard, and you, and you know that neither coach is going to allow his players to be looking ahead, especially coming off a loss. There's going to be a lot of teaching, a lot of film study, a lot of, Hey, look at what you did here. Look what you did there. Um, I, I'm sure that they're going to come out and play much better. Um, on Wednesday, but yeah, I, I think they're going to really use that, try to use their next games as a springboard. Now, Butler being the, that they lost to uh, Villanova at Villanova earlier this season is going to come out and really want to uh, show that they're the better team on their home floor, especially coming off a loss against Providence uh, in Indianapolis as well. So that that's going to have Butler pretty well uh, fired up for that game, but you know, Villanova is going to come in there and, and play and do what they do. I mean, they they don't really dwell on what's on the in the past. And and when you ask them about anything in the future past the next game, they just kind of look at you like you're you got two heads. So, I, I think both teams are going to come out and you know probably play uh, a, one of their best games of the season on Wednesday before they meet in their showdown at the Wells Fargo Center on Saturday. So this next topic is going to pain me just to talk about. Can you please explain to me how this winning streak for Nova has reached 15-0 and 0 and now dates back a total of 26 years at home? I understand the Wildcats have had a better program for much of the time, but the gap on certain years has not been that wide, and yet the margin of victory in Philadelphia is over double digits on average during the streak. Now, I just don't get it. What What do you make of it? Well, let's see. Um, that's a good point. Um I remember one year Seton Hall came in and just got blitzed, but that was the the time they were in the middle of a three-game road trip where uh, they were having some travel issues. Uh, they had to fly from uh, some somewhere in the Midwest to Providence, and then they had to 
take the bus back to Seton Hall and then I had to take another bus trip to Villanova. And, you know, Kevin, I know, was not happy with the way the schedule had been uh, put in that. And, and of course, you, you have to play the, the team that's ahead of you. So you, you really don't have any excuse there. But he didn't care that much for that. And there were other times where, you know, Villanova just played well and got off to a good start. And, you know, Seton Hall just didn't have an answer. I, I was always interested. Um, Angel Delgado used to always struggle against Villanova. He'd kill other teams. And, and, and when they played Villanova, he, he just wasn't the same guy. I, I just could never figure that out. There was a, a couple of years there, of course, where he played against Daniel Oshefu of Villanova. And I think that might have had something to do with the, that, those years. But, uh, yeah, I, I can never figure it out. I, I have no solid answers for you guys as to why the gap is so big. So before we let you go, let's talk about something a little less serious. Now, we've had a bit of a debate here as to what a rivalry is. Now, while I understand the true definition of a rivalry is simply competition for the same objective, in the sports terms, I tend to lean as an explanation of a rivalry of one being where both parties are somewhat successful against each other. I think both parties need to be a threat, basically. So... Is Seton Hall and Villanova a rivalry, in your opinion? Well, I think it's become a rivalry in, in the last couple of years. Uh, you know, when Villano- when Seton Hall got that class of, you know, Carrington and uh, and Delgado and and, and and Rodriguez, I mean, that was that was growing into a rivalry. The better those guys got, you know, the better the rivalry was. And then when Seton Hall beat Villanova in the 2016 Big East Championship game, you know, it was like, okay, this is a rivalry. Um, you know, Villanova still has won some games in Newark, but boy, they've been real, you know, sweated out nail biters. But yeah, I, I think it has grown into a rivalry. I think if you ask me who's Villanova's biggest rival in the Big East, it's still got to be Georgetown because everybody still remembers 85 and Patrick Ewing and John Thompson and all that stuff. And the, the Georgetown still, you know, kind of you know, lights a flame in, in the old time Villanova fans. But, uh, yeah, but Seton Hall would be, uh, you know, a, a close second in my, in my opinion. See, I, I, have a one, I have one issue with this argument, Joe. Going back to the 15-0 streak, if you can't beat the other team on their home court, to me that kind of diffuses a little bit of the rivalry, in my opinion. Well, that might be true, yeah. Uh, you know, I didn't even realize it was 15 straight until you mentioned it. But, it's, uh, but I, I just, you know, it's funny. The, the games at Villanova or at the Wells Fargo Center are not real memorable to me, but the ones at the Prudential Center I remember pretty well. So uh, maybe it's maybe it's that. I don't know. Maybe it's just my brain acting uh, like, oh, yeah, uh, so I Villanova won another game at Villanova. But look at, look at the, the struggles they get on the road at, at, at the Rock. So, Joe, we're going to close this out and put you on the spot. Give us a prediction oh, for boy. this game. Well, I'll tell you what, after the way Villanova's played their seven-game winning streak, I would have had no hesitation to say, yeah, Villanova's going to win this game. But after that performance against Creighton on Saturday, I'm I'm not so sure. Um, They really came out a step slow in that game, and Creighton just played great. And I'm I'm thinking, you know, if Seton Hall gets it going, if, uh, you know, I, I... I have to look at the Saturday loss to Xavier as, a, as an anomaly. I, I, I was shocked to, to see the, pro, the progression of the scores. And then when they cut it inside of double digits, I'm thinking, okay, Seahawks should be okay now. They'll, they'll probably come back and win the game. But I'm, I'm thinking it's going to be just, you know, another one of these nail-biting down-to-the-wire games. 
But the, the interesting thing is that when Villanova's had those kind of games this year, they've won them. You know, they, the loss to Marquette was, uh, I think, by nine. The loss to Creighton was double digits. They got killed by at Ohio State, and Baylor just was a better team on the day they played them. So, yeah, I, I'm thinking if it, if it comes down to the wire, I, I think Villanova will have enough to win, but it's, it's going to be a one-possession game. Well, Joe, we can't thank you enough for coming on and bringing us behind enemy lines. We really appreciate your time. Oh, thank you, Tom. Thank you, Mike. Appreciate it. And like, talk, I really enjoy talking to you guys. Uh, thank you, Joe. So there was Joe Giuliano talking about the game that Seton Hall is going to have on the road. And speaking of the road, Mike, let's talk about the road to 2494. I can't do these segues anymore. I just really can't. <laughs> All right, Tommy. So, so the road took a bit of a detour this week, right? You know, Miles started off with a solid game of 24 points against DePaul, but he got shut down and had a meager nine against Xavier. That kind of what makes this record so difficult, right? Now he sits at 2,069, and he's still 65 points behind Jeremy Zell for third on the all-time scoring list. He needed to average, you know, somewhere in the 22 to 27 range, depending on how many games Seton Hall was going to play for the rest of the season. And in the last three games, Miles has averaged 15.6 points per game. You know, it just makes it really hard. It really puts it into perspective, like I said before, how hard it's going to be for him to chase down a career total of Terry's. So now I'm going to flip and flop again. And now I'm back to the chances are Miles is not going to make it there. You watch, he'll go off for 40 in back-to-back games, and I'll be back on the, the bandwagon next week. See, Mike, this is what I was trying to say from the beginning of the season. You know, we pointed out that the single-season scoring leader in Biggie's play was Dougie Buckets with almost 27 points a game. And that's really difficult in a college game. And you know what? Let's forget about Marcus Howard. He's an anomaly. They let him shoot any shot he wants at any time. And he's also the reason why they drove out the Hauser brothers because they did not want to not have shots this year. It's also the reason why they're six and four in Biggie's play. So kudos for them for, you know, possibly getting back to the NCAA tournament. But we got bigger aspirations as a team. So if Miles is going to do what's best for the program and sacrifice on a given night, like he did the other day when he only took six shots and we won, sure, it's going to be tough, though, to have watch Miles sit back and only score nine when we lose. That, that was a little frustrating. Well, we're coming into Nova week, Mike. What's going to happen? Well, well, let me give you some perspective for this past week. I admittedly am guilty of scoreboard watching the top ten. I'm just sitting there watching games, and my wife's like, why the heck are you watching Gonzaga San Francisco? Right? Because I, I want to see us have a chance to move up in the standings. My buddy's texting me going, Florida State lost this week. And I'm like, yes, nice. You know, there's number five probably dropping below us. It's fun to do that. It, it's fun to go check the bracketology predictions and see, can we sneak into a one or two seed? You know, it's, it's fun to plan my hotel accommodations for Atlanta in the final four. You know, but the last few games has reminded me, that this is a long journey. It's a process. There's going to be some ups and downs. Guys get hurt. Players get into slumps. The rotation's changing all the time. And not making it to the Final Four will not make this season a failure. I, th- I think that's going to be difficult for some people to accept, right? Where when you get on the run and you're in the euphoria of the moment, it's kind of hard to step back and realize that, as most people have come on the show and said, the tournament's a crapshoot, right? 
So I think the focus for the short term should be to get everyone back healthy and back into the flow while hanging a Big East regular season title banner for the first time in 26 years, right? And Tommy, almost forgot, oh yeah, break the losing streak at Nova. If not now, when, Tommy? This year, Mike, we're going to go down to Georgetown and win that game. We're going to go to Nova. We're going to win that game. And we're going to be saying, go Big Blue. Go Pirates. So if you've enjoyed this podcast, please listen to our previous podcasts, which include interviews with former players, Mark Bryant, Marcus Toniel, Lavelle Sanders, Jerry Walker, and Shaheen Holloway. For Tommy Chilkaharski, I am Mike Dizzy Dizzyri, and you've been listening to Left Coast Pirates. Pirates. <laughs>